This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Some of you may think a podcast about representation, it's not for me. But if you're a human being, then the podcast Reppin is for you, because we all represent something as people. So are you interested in knowing what you have in common with your favorite actors, to best-selling authors, and leaders in different genres? On Reppin, you'll meet notable people you think you know. You'll see what they show up for, and you'll see what they represent. It's an insightful, feel-good show, hosted by me, Evelyn. So come and take a listen. Reppin is available wherever you get your podcasts. Realm presents Silverwood, Episode 5. Fred stared at the forest. Pollen hung over it like fog. It wasn't as bad here at the campsite, but it would be soon if the wind shifted anymore. Several boys were already sniffling. The 30 minutes Fred had decided to give the missing campers to return had turned into 45. And then more than an hour before he'd begun to panic enough to gather the chaperones. On top of that, he'd wasted almost another ten minutes arguing with Hogan. God darn it, Hogan, Fred growled between his teeth, clipping his own profanity for the sake of the kids. I'm not here to get into a length-measuring contest with you. My boy is missing. Taylor and Gwen are missing. And Seth's not answering his phone. He's probably changing out one of Gwen's bloody tampons. Petey chortled at his grandfather, and Fred blanched. He didn't want Hogan Carter anywhere near these kids, but it was so darn hard getting any adults to volunteer. A delightful daydream played across his still-open eyes. He smashed at Hogan's leering, nicotine-stained mouth to the tune of the flower duet. Shards of teeth went flying, floating on strands of lilting falsetto into the air. Hogan's head flew back in slow motion, blood and spittle flying from his... No! Fred shouted, snapping back to reality. All the parents' eyes locked on him. With Seth missing, he was left with Hogan, Dan, Tony, and the new guy, Chris Cabral, who had acquitted himself so well against Hogan earlier. Hogan raised an eyebrow. 
Fred flushed hot from embarrassment and ran his hand up and down his forearm. He took a deep breath and collected his nerves in a little bundle. You were in the military, Hogan. What happened to no man left behind? Hogan opened his mouth but paused. He rolled his eyes in grudging acquiescence, and Fred breathed a sigh of relief. At least he had finally gotten through to the big jerk using his own language. That's supposed to apply to men, not Bailey's weirdo daughter and her pet retard. But fine, I'll go save them, and I'll do it alone. That asshole Bailey probably got them lost. Hogan! Fred jerked his eyes in the direction of the kids. Hogan waved off his complaint. Ah, these boys have all heard asshole before. And worse than that, I bet, haven't you boys? I sure have, Grandpa, Petey shouted happily. I know dick and shit and boobs and... All right, that's enough, Petey. Hogan, you shouldn't go alone, though. We need to go in groups of at least three. Ah, stuff it up your ass, Pocahontas. I'll track down Bailey and the moron munchkins and be back before dark. Fred turned to look at the other chaperones. All right, he said. We'll form a second group. I think what we should do is... We can't leave these kids alone, Fred. Tony rumbled. I mean, what are they even doing over there? Nearby, Kendall shouted, Hiya! Panicking, Fred whirled around to see three boys in the cordoned off axe yard. Steve was holding a log on his lap, and Kendall was hacking at it overhand with a hatchet. Jesus Christ! Fred shouted, punctuated by guffaws from Hogan and Petey. He hurried over and snatched the axe out of Kendall's hands. What are you boys doing? Hand over your whittling chips. Looking sheepish, the boys stared at the ground and shuffled their feet. Fred's eyes widened. What? You don't even have whittling chips? Fred felt a claustrophobic sense of near panic seizing him. He could have slapped Kendall right in the face. He could have broken his damn nose. What? No. He shook his head. That dark thought had just been a momentary loss of control. That wasn't him. He forced himself to breathe slower and calm down. Hell of a job scout leading you're doing there, Tall Feather, Logan called out. One more hack and the boy would have had less balls than you. Fred's eyes clouded over with red, and he clutched the handle of the little hatchet until he was sure he was going to pop the axe head right off. He opened his mouth trying to come up with just the right, wretched, hateful thing to spout back into Hogan Carter's nasty mug. But Hogan spoke first. You know what? I don't know if I trust my grandson with you. Hey, Petey, fat ass, stupid one, black kid. Y'all want to come with me and save Mr. Bailey and the retards? I'll teach you how to march like we did in the Marine Corps. How about that? Excited, the four boys crowded around Hogan, shouting things like, yeah, and... Awesome. Did you ever kill a man, Mr. Carter? Kendall asked tentatively. Hogan nodded, clearly delighted by the attention and even the grotesque question. Boys, Fred said in his best warning tone, but no one was listening. Sure, I killed tons of guys, Hogan said. There's nothing impressive about that. The real story is the time one of Saddam's Republican guards pulled a knife on me. Fred rolled his eyes, but Petey and his friends seemed more than dutifully impressed. 
Were you scared, Mr. Carter? Kendall asked. Scared of some raghead? Nah. Ragheads are all inherently cowards. Remember that, boys. I knew he wasn't going to do nothing. And so what if he did? I would have died in battle. And the greatest thing a man can do is die in battle. Julius Caesar said that. Dolce de leche and decoration something something. It was Latin. Don't study Latin, boys. It's for sissies. Isn't Semper Fi Latin? Lamar, usually very quiet, asked. Fred smiled as Hogan seemed caught up short for a moment. But as always, he was quick with a bullshit response. No, dumbass. It's American. It's the goddamn Marine Corps motto. Don't you know anything? Come on. Show me how you march in formation. You don't know how? What are they teaching you kids in schools these days? Fred slowly lowered the hatchet to his side. He sighed. There was so much to teach these boys. The right way to hold an axe, for one. But it would be a couple of years before they were even ready for the safety lessons on that. Meanwhile, Hogan would be teaching them all sorts of garbage. He already had the boys lined up and marching. A chorus line of little fascist ducklings behind him. My girl is a vegetable, he shouted at them, and they dutifully replied in kind. Then he continued. She lives in a hospital. The sounds of the cadence faded, and Fred turned back to the other chaperones. Well, Hogan Carter's not my favorite person in the world, but at least he'll keep those four troublemakers distracted for a while. In the meantime, we need to find our missing people. Chris, you're pretty new here. Do you want to stay in the campsite with the rest of the boys while we go marching all over creation? Chris put his hand on Fred's shoulder and smiled. Not in your life, Fred. I promised I'd help you find those boys, and I mean to, new guy or not. The younger man's support meant more to him in that moment than he could say. He nodded. Dan, how about you? Dan nodded. You know me, Fred. I'd rather sit in a camp chair than traipse around the woods any day. I'll keep a close eye on Justin for you, Chris. Thanks, Dan. As Dan returned to the camp, Fred was pleased to see him counting off the remaining boys on his fingers. They'd be in good hands. He turned back to Chris and Tony. And then there were three. Anyone have any thoughts about where our missing people are? Panting and wheezing, Taylor had to stop. His breath felt scratchy and rough in his throat, like he'd swallowed a sock. Behind him, somewhere, was the horrible black puddle of goo that had consumed Harold and then taken on his shape, all the more disturbing for having no eyes or nose and a crawling, ever-changing tar pit for a face. What do I do? What do I do? A stink bug would have expressed its glands, emitting an unpleasant odor to ward off its attacker. That was a terrible idea, though. He had only ever pooped his pants in public once, and the other children had very nearly driven him crying from the playground over it. So why was that the first option to come to his mind? Oh, he realized, speaking out loud. It's because it stinks out here. The air was sweet, an unusual sickly sweet. But it had been like that since they'd arrived at camp. No, there was another smell. 
a foul smell. Like the time he'd found the dead raccoon under the porch, practically wriggling with maggots. The raccoon had been a bonanza for his research, but it had stunk something awful, and his mom had flipped out when she got home that night. He sniffed the air, remembering both the cartoon birds and Mr. Tallfeather's admonition, when in doubt, follow your nose. The monstrosity that was chasing him forgotten. Taylor licked his finger to get a feel for the wind and then followed the unpleasant scent. It led him into a small clearing. He gasped when he saw what was there. Oh, gosh, he said, clapping his hand over his mouth. Two ladies lay on the ground in various poses, and another was wedged in a tree. Normally he would have shaken them and asked if they were okay, but each was surrounded by a halo of flies. He knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, what that meant. A gurgling moan sounded behind him. Consume. Feed. Freedom. Home. The thing that had been Harold burst into the clearing in its strange, almost stumbling gait. It had been Harold, it had been a toad, it had been a fly, and before that, it had been... Home. The bony pink interloping creature. No, Taylor. The bony thing was called Taylor. If it had chosen to right then, it might have crossed the distance between them and devoured him before he could even scream. Consume. It felt pulled in two different directions. It wanted nothing to do with this dimension, this dull physical plane. Yet the more it devoured, the more it wanted to ingest. It had become an addict, like its mother, Maeve Tallfeather, sitting alone at night, gobbling down boxes of pink wine and watching old women of fading beauty slap each other on the television. No, that wasn't its mother. It had no mother. It had always been and always would be. The thing called Taylor lurked at the edge of the clearing, staring at it, frozen in fear. It would consume him soon enough. But now it had practically stumbled upon far easier, unmoving game. It dropped to what served as its knees and pressed a wriggling hand into the mouth of one of the three dead women. Driven by the part of it that had been a toad, a thousand tiny tendrils exploded from it, the razor-thin appendages impaling a handful of flies. The cloud of flies started to dissipate, seeming to sense the doom that came from below, but a second wave of tendrils attacked the rest. The dead woman's eyes opened, but she wasn't rising under her own power. Amber. This bony pink thing's name was Amber. Its tendrils lifted her, making her dance like a marionette on its gooey black strings. The flies continued to swirl around her, all pirouetting in exactly the same fashion, attached to the mass by tendrils of black goo. They all sang their own stories, stories of glorious wet dung and garbage and a full 28 days of exquisite life. Its other hand shot into the second woman's mouth, and tiny tributaries erupted from it to capture her flies as well. Ken, no, Karen, now. 
Then its leg shot into the third woman's mouth, and the herald-like form that the black goo had been carrying during its pursuit of Taylor disappeared altogether. This was Mary, and she dripped with jealousy. The three women were standing, limbs akimbo, surrounded by a legion of flies on tendrils flailing about in wild trajectories, crying out in atavistic pleasure. The Gestalt realized it resembled the dolls it had sometimes made by folding a sheet of paper several times and then cutting a stick figure out and unfolding them. No, that had been Amber. Consume, multiply, feed. Each of the three women opened their mouths and black, burbling goo poured out like they were rabid dogs. Tendrils of the goo flowed from their ears and nostrils, and the same thing happened, writ small, to the swarms. The thing, six legs and a thousand wings bouncing in a rhythmless step, advanced on Taylor. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. My name is Jenny Owen-Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The boys marched along, shouting a dirty cadence at the top of their lungs and swinging sticks in imitation of rifles. Like any good leader, Hogan had taken up the rear, where he could keep an eye on his people. His grandson was right in front of him, and that suited him just fine. If they ran into any animals, mud, or just general woodland unpleasantness, the kids he didn't give a shit about would run into it first. Something stank in the air nearby, and he wasn't sure if it was a dead animal or what. It smelled like molasses that had turned or something. Let the other kids step in that first. Petey glanced back at him. Hogan gave a come-hither gesture with his finger, and Petey turned white as a sheet. Good. 
He didn't care if the boy loved him or not, but he'd be damned if he didn't fear and respect him. Petey came hustling back to him. I'm sorry, Grandpa, he wheezed. I, I know you said we're supposed to keep our eyes forward when we're walking in formation, but I wanted to see if... Forget about that, Hogan said quietly. He didn't want the other kids to hear this. Not that they gave a shit what they thought, but he had a suspicion one or two of them were snitches. The fat one, definitely. Maybe the weird smell was coming off him. And that black kid? Well, everyone knew how blacks were, even with their own kind. That faggot tall feather doesn't let you boys use axes? Petey shook his head. No, you need a totem chip for that. And we can't get that until we're tenderfoots, tenderfeet, um, uh, Boy Scouts, official-like. What about knives? Petey sheepishly scratched the back of his neck. Well, you're allowed to do that if you have a whittling chip, but I lost mine because I threw my practice knife at Gwen and Taylor. Tootling this, whittling that. It's a goddamn country bear jamboree around here. What the hell good is a scout without a knife? Here. Now don't you tell Hiawatha or your shitty friends about this. Hogan pressed a pocket knife into Petey's hand. The boy's face lit up as though Christmas had fucked his birthday and Hogan had just handed him the baby. Gee whiz! Thanks, Grandpa! Don't say gee whiz, dipshit. You sound like Beaver Cleaver or some shit. Sorry, Grandpa. Thank you for the present, though. You're welcome, and remember, not a word to the others. Hogan tapped his index finger to his mouth. Petey nodded excitedly and shoved the knife in his pocket before hurrying back to his place in line. As the trees grew less dense and ultimately disappeared altogether, Hogan spotted a large warehouse-like structure ringed by a chain-link fence. He furrowed his brow. He hadn't thought there were buildings this deep in the woods. The warehouse had been mostly reclaimed by nature, with vines and moss growing all over it. The only indication of what it had once been was a sign obscured by creeping vines. The numbers 04 were visible, along with a weird logo, a crown of some kind. Hogan stumbled, stubbed his toe, and hissed, trying not to squeal in pain like a woman. He looked down at the slightly raised concrete platform he had tripped over and nudged it with his other foot. What the shit is this? The boys were still yelling at the top of their lungs about the infamous Jody was supposedly back at home banging the wives of all the deployed men. Wait, shut up, you idiots. No, that's not right, Mr. Carter, the fat one, maybe his name was Steve, said, rushing up. You're supposed to use hand signals, like you taught us. Remember, you're supposed to hold up your fist like this to call a halt. The kid was still talking as Hogan grabbed him and nonchalantly tucked his flapping mouth under his armpit. He stood there, still pondering ignoring the child vainly trying to struggle his way out of a grown man's death grip. Petey and the others giggled hopelessly. This looks like it might be, Hogan mused. He felt a sharp pain in his ribs and yelped. He shoved Steve back on his fat ass and checked his side. You bit me, you little retard. I couldn't breathe, Mr. Carter. You were holding me and I didn't want to play and shut up. The rest of you. We're grown up enough not to bite like a fucking infant. Help me clear the shit off this, this circle. There was a clanner as the boys tossed down the sticks he'd been teaching them rifle drills with. He stood, arms folded, as they kicked the leaves, moss, and underbrush off the concrete platform. 
When they were done, a giant H was fully revealed. I was right, he announced. This is a helipad. Wow, the boys said, almost as one. Do you know how to fly a helicopter, Mr. Carter? Kendall asked. Hogan nodded. Sure I know how to fly one. I'm not licensed, but that's just because the pusses at the FAA don't like me. But I flew behind the lines a million times for the Green Berets and the SEALs. Ah, but I'm not supposed to tell you kids this shit. No, 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 Steve said, his pudgy little arms flailing wildly. We want to hear, Mr. Carter. We want to hear. Uh, another time, maybe. Look at this place. Some kind of warehouse or something. Let's check it out. You think Mr. Bailey's in there, Mr. Carter? Lamar asked. Hogan felt a flush of shame. He had completely forgotten what they had come out here for. Was he really getting that old? No, it wasn't that. It wasn't anything like that. He just gave so little of a shit about Seth Bailey that it completely slipped his mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's probably a good possibility. A sharp shout of pain cut through the still late afternoon air. Hogan glanced over to see Petey yanking on a handful of Steve's hair. Hogan's eyes narrowed in disgust. Hey, what the hell are you doing? Petey, chastened, released his grip on the other boy's head. Sorry, Grandpa. Damn right you're sorry. What kind of way to fight is that? Petey, put your fist up like this. Hogan showed him the proper pugilist's stance. Fatass, you do the same. Steve ran a pudge-stuffed sleeve across his face. He'd obviously been crying. I don't want to, Mr. Carter. I don't want to fight. Why not? What if he hurts me? Boys, now listen, all of you. This is important. Pain is just weakness leaving the body. It's good for you. Besides, Petey's your enemy. What do you do to your enemy? Petey's not my enemy. Hogan struggled down onto one knee. He put a hand on the kid's shoulder. Probably didn't have a father figure at home. Hogan was doing him a real service. Look, Steve, nobody wants to fight. You think President Eisenhower wanted to get us into World War II? No, but Hitler's ass still needed killing. But why? Steve whined, dragging out the last word for far too long. Hogan slapped him. The boy rubbed at his cheek like Hogan had just beaten the piss out of him. Frankly, at this point, he had half a mind to. First of all, don't whine like that, ever. You sound like a woman. And second, I'm going to answer your question. Not because adults have to answer to kids, but because you're stupid and don't understand the world. So I'm going to educate you. Hitler was a bully. And if there's one thing I know, it's that bullies need killing sometimes. So we went in there, and we strung that goddamn paper hanger up like he deserved. I don't think, Lamar started to say, but Kendall wisely put a hand on his friend's shoulder and shook his head so that he would shut up. All right, now. Fat ass. Punch him. Grandpa, Petey moaned. Don't you start whining, too. Come on, Steve. It's not rocket science. Just punch him. But I don't wanna. Hogan shoved the kid. I didn't ask if you wanted to. Hit him. Show me you're a man. Mustering all his energy, 
Steve gave Petey the most limp-wristed, half-assed sissy slap Hogan had ever seen. Hogan waited, but Petey didn't seem inclined to do anything in response, so he smacked him in the back of the head. You better hit him, boy. Lamar groaned. Mr. Carter, aren't we supposed to be looking for Mr. Bailey? Hey, shut up. Who's the adult here? Jesus Christ, you kids are useless. Completely soft. He threw his hands up in the air and turned toward the warehouse or whatever it was. Fine. We'll go search for Bailey. A whiff of something gross, syrupy, and sickly hit Hogan's nostrils. The stench was so foul it stopped him in his tracks. He stood fast for a moment, grimacing and trying to get a good breath despite the putrid stench. He wanted to beat some sense into those kids. Take them and punch the little faces until they were bleeding and black-eyed and looked like ground-up hamburger meat. No, no, they were just children. He couldn't do that as much as he wanted to. He shook his head to clear the fog and surreptitiously slipped the blood thinner into his mouth and dry-swallowed it. No need for the boys to know he was on medication. When he finally felt the fog lifting, the stench had diminished, but only slightly. He turned around. Which one of you shit your pants? The four boys stared at him, their little eyes demented, almost hungry. He didn't like the looks they were giving him. They must have smelled it too, like brown sugar and diapers. If anything, they were littler than him, so it should have been more overpowering. Fess up. It was you, wasn't it, fat ass? Steve didn't say a word. That alone was worthy of being on the front page of the goddamned L.A. Times. Hogan breathed deeply again, much as he didn't want to. He could have taken a belt to each of the boys until their backs were jagged and raw for looking at him like that. In fact, he couldn't get the image out of his head. He planted his hands on his hips. What's wrong with you four? You don't want to learn to fight like regular straights, and now you're doing whatever this is? The boys were breathing heavily like they'd each just run a race, but they certainly had done nothing to warrant it. They were cupping their hands over their mouths and whispering in each other's ears. Hey, what is this? Are you all plotting something? He slapped Kendall upside the head, then Steve. Still, the boy said nothing. He shoved Petey and then cracked Lamar across the face with the back of his hand. His kind didn't even deserve a fist. One of you, he said between clenched teeth, had better start speaking. Steve screamed like a baboon and came flying at Hogan, his chubby arms windmilling. Laughing, Hogan held out a hand, expecting to grab the tiny shit by the head and stop him midway through his little charge. Steve surprised him with his speed, though, and passed right under his guard, driving his head into Hogan's crotch. You fucking faggot, Hogan roared. Then he roared even louder, this time in pain as Steve bit into the meaty part of his thigh. The kid's mouth was small, but his teeth were sharp and his bite hard. Did the kid file his damn teeth or something? Hogan punched downward as hard as he could, clocking the boy in the crown of his head. Steve collapsed, but his clenched jaw didn't loosen as Hogan had hoped they would. The thin material of his pants ripped, and blood began to soak them. Hogan fingered his wound and found that a chunk of flesh was missing presumably still in the fat kid's mouth. 
What the hell is wrong with you? Ogan screamed. He lifted his boot up to stomp on the nearly unconscious kid. With his good leg in the air, all of his weight was now on the wounded one, and he winced in pain, but remained determined to curb stomp the little shit. Was he rabid? Crazy? Just twisted and spiteful? Suddenly, Hogan was flying off balance and fell backward, landing with a painful thump on his tailbone. Kendall and Lamar were savagely whacking at him with the sticks they'd been using for rifle drills. Hogan tried to swat away the flying branches, but he was too old and slow. He felt the tears welling in his eyes, but he'd be goddamned if he'd show any weakness to these little fucks. Stop it! Get off me or you will fucking pay! He shouted at the top of his lungs. Instead of trying to ward off the blows anymore, he moved his hands over his head like a makeshift cowl, trying to stop them from hitting his eyes, face, and head. The two boys seemed to take that as the new target and began savaging his arthritic knuckles. He'd have to weather the storm until they got tired or gave him an opening. And then he would exact a bloody, awful revenge. He was already picturing it now their bodies bruised and battered beyond all recognition. Leave him alone. The flurial blows stopped at Petey's unexpected pronouncement. Struggling to breathe, Hogan looked up to see his grandson looming in the burgeoning dusk. Kendall and Lamar stepped aside, bloodlust still in their eyes, but wary of Petey as a pack of wolves might be before an alpha male. Oh, Petey, Hogan wheezed his battered lungs struggling to draw breath. I knew you'd help your poor old granddad. Come help me up, boy. He held out his hand. Petey took a step forward. He had the demented leer of a sex-crazed adolescent, something Hogan had never seen on his grandson's face before. The leer was one of lust, but somehow girls seemed the furthest thing from his mind. Help you? Why should I help you? You're a cranky old bully who beats on me and my friends. You try to make us fight? You swear at us all the time when you're not slapping us around? Nobody likes you. Nobody wants to be near you. But we tolerate it because you're old and lonely and we feel sorry for you. Help you? I wouldn't pee on you if you were on fire. You've never helped me. You've never done a thing for me. Hogan blinked and shook his head, freaking out as he felt his left eye seemingly pop out of its socket. He probed the area with his finger and felt that the pop and rush of blood had in fact simply been a late-blooming black eye. That's... that's not true. I came on this trip with you. I look out for you. Hogan shoved the two other boys away. If I slap you and your friends around, it's because you need discipline. Steve rose from his little heap not even wincing from the hard knock Hogan had given him. Bullshit, the fat kid shouted. Petey shook his head almost mournfully. No, Grandpa. Maybe you tell yourself that, but you act the way you do because you're a nasty, mean old bastard. You're my enemy. And what do you do to your enemy? Hogan struggled to his feet, choking back pain from the bite wound Steve had given him. You stay away. You little freaks, stay back. Petey, my little boy, my baby grandson. I've loved you since you were knee-high to a June bug. I, I used to hold you, you remember? What about... What about that present I just gave you? 
Petey took another step forward, casting his gaze at the ground. He took a deep breath of the rancid air, and when his eyes came up again, they were coursing with red veins. He looked utterly deranged. He reached into his pocket and pulled out the small red folding knife, fingers trembling with rage. Petey unfolded the can opener from it, a long, sharp, outward-facing hook with a smaller, inner-facing hook. Hogan's heart fluttered, and he didn't like it, not least of all because he was already cold and sweating. He was healthy as a horse. There was no way he was going to have a heart attack. But he wasn't exactly spry enough to outrun a pack of ten-year-olds, especially not with Steve's bite wound. What do you think you're doing with that? Put it away and get back in formation. In fact, all of you get back in formation. But he wasn't intimidating to them anymore. They didn't even respond. Sometimes bullies just need killing, Umar said. Petey and the others nodded. Clasping his wound, Hogan turned and attempted to sprint away. But he was old and hurt and they were young and angry. He howled as Petey drove the jagged hook of the can opener into his left angel wing. He yanked himself free of Petey's grip. A hundred grubby little hands snatched at him, kicking and punching, the adrenaline pumping through his veins and the disgusting molasses smell thick in his nostrils. Hogan fought free of his attackers. He hustled toward the warehouse marked with zero four, not even stopping to yank the pocket knife out of his shoulder. Hey, Lydia said, crouching to the little girl's level. My name's Lydia. Your dad called you Gwen, right? The father put his hands on his daughter's shoulders and pushed her behind him. Why don't you talk to me instead? My name's Seth. Seth Bailey. He didn't extend his hand, and his voice was cold, almost hostile. Lydia's head bobbed up and down. It's cool. I get it. I'm a stranger in the woods, and this whole forest is acting buggy. I wouldn't trust me either. Buggy? The girl asked, peeking around her father's side. What do you mean, buggy? Lydia blew a long breath between her teeth. Where to even start? You mentioned ghosts, Seth said, lowering his voice. Are you on drugs or something? Lydia almost laughed. I wish it were that simple. You ever have your computer just go haywire on you? Open a bunch of random programs or stop responding to you? Well, maybe you're not big computer users. I guess you're outdoor types? I like Minecraft, the girl said. Lydia's eyes brightened, but she hoped she didn't look too excited. Me too. Okay, Seth said, trying not too subtly to return his daughter to a safe position behind his back. So when you say buggy, you mean like the phones and GPS don't work? That kind of thing? Lydia shook her head. Well, yeah, that too, but no, I mean like some Twilight Zone sh things. She caught herself just in time, almost forgetting about the kid. I've been seeing ghosts or visions or something, and not just people. I saw a phantom forest fire. Seth took a step back. She waved her arms in the air. No, no, I swear, I'm not on drugs and I'm not crazy. Look, I can prove it. I mean, I can't prove the ghosts, but there's been other weird stuff. 
At first, I thought it was somebody playing a joke. Like this Beatles song. You guys like the Beatles? I prefer Led Zeppelin, the girl responded. Lydia chuckled. Good taste, good taste. You're raising your right, Seth. Well, I don't have any Zep on my phone, but listen to this. She pulled up her Spotify app and clicked on her Beatles playlist. She clicked through a few songs, hoping the damn phone wouldn't make a liar out of her now that it mattered. Then she found something. Over the Ocean was the song, and the album was Everyday Chemistry. She held it up and let the song play. Seth's face wrinkled. I don't know this one, the girl said after a moment. I don't either, her father agreed. That's because it doesn't exist, Lydia said. Or maybe I should say it shouldn't exist. It was recorded in 1976, according to this. The Beatles broke up in 1970. The little girl emerged from hiding and looked up at her father. How is that possible, Dad? Seth shook his head. It's just a trick or a prank or something, Gwen. That's what I thought at first, Lydia said. But I've been seeing weird stuff like this all day. News stories about Kurt Cobain still being alive. President Schwarzenegger. A 20th anniversary memorial for Nelson Mandela, who died in prison. The Beatles never broke up, but the Stones did. Oh, the Rolling Stones finally broke up, Gwen pouted. No, you're not getting it. These things aren't really happening, but people are saying they are. The internet's full of weird people, Seth said. Lydia nodded. Yeah, but I'm getting emails from some weird company called C. They were connected to Silverwood at one point. I think there's something wrong with this place. Seth bit his lip. He had the look of someone in turmoil, trying to make a decision. Gwen, he said, his voice obviously masked to sound completely normal. Remember I told you not to play around in the kitchenette? Yeah, she replied, shuffling her feet. On second thought, we may be here a while. See if you can find us some sealed dry food. Don't touch anything moldy or open. The girl lit up. Ah, to be young again and excited by the prospect of a can of Pringles. She disappeared to ransack the kitchenette for whatever food was left. Seth turned to Lydia. When he spoke, it was in a measured but obviously probing tone. Tell me more about C. She held up her phone again. I've got a ream of emails and texts about them. A lot of them contradict each other, like when the company was founded, when it shut down, who ran it. Sometimes the names are just a little different from each other, like Gustamante instead of Bustamante. Seth sat down at a thrumming computer, but pointed the rolling chair away from the screen to face her. He gestured for her to sit in one of the cubicle's harder guest chairs. The abbreviation stands for Silverwood Engineering and Electrical. I think this building is some kind of C document archive, and I don't like what I'm finding out. He gestured at stack after stack of papers featuring the crown-like C logo on their letterheads. This place was definitely connected to the rest of the general weirdness. Can you give me the Cliff's Notes version? He nodded and rifled through some sheets he had set aside. Here, this is from a Dr. Rossi, 
mostly it's this boring geological survey. Silverwood is home to a CR-07 electromagnetic field, whatever that is, the most powerful in the United States, possibly all of North America. Dull as dishwater, right? Lydia shrugged. Depends how you feel about CR-whatever-whatever -whatever fields, I guess. Sure, but then there's this at the end. It is therefore my carefully considered conclusion that every 100 years, the area of Silverwood, California, and its geomorphological and bathy, uh, bathymetric environs are rocked by a seemingly unexplainable bout of human violence and brutality. What? Lydia snatched the paper out of his hand and read it for herself. The Serrano Mutiny of 1613. A mass suicide in 1712. The 1810 Mission Massacre. Cave explosion in 1913. But aren't we a couple of years past when this should have happened? Seth shrugged. Yeah, kind of. There were these horrible wildfires around 2012, though, that might have been arson. But still, it's never exactly a hundred years. We could be coming on that cycle. I've been feeling on edge, like there's something in the air. Something that's making me a little- Dad, look, I found a bag of double stuff! He glanced at his daughter, who was staring at him with rapt attention. Not myself, he concluded. That's great, honey. You want a five-year-old cookie, Lydia? Heck yeah, I do, she replied, making Gwen beam as she ripped open the package and stuffed a stale Oreo in her mouth. She carefully weighed whether to continue the conversation in Gwen's presence and decided she had to, perhaps leaving out some of the gorier bits if they came up. I know what you mean about not feeling yourself. I've been feeling the same way. Irritable, upset, almost aggressive, like I could just punch somebody in the face. I feel that way all the time, Gwen said, like I can see myself punching someone, or worse, but I don't know why I would want to do that to someone I like. I call it the creeper. So that was it. The kid was troubled. And with whatever was in the air, gas, chemicals, some kind of biological weapon, she was probably especially on edge. But no, if anything, Gwen looked calm. Come to think of it, if Seth was being affected by whatever was in the atmosphere, he was being unusually welcoming as well. And frankly, Lydia wasn't as upset as she had been before. Gwen, we don't need to talk about that right now. You always said it was healthier to talk about it. You said if I ever wanted to talk about it, I should, to you, and you would always be there for me. Seth looked visibly wounded. Oof. How did innocent kids know how to twist the knife like that? Oh, I just got it, Lydia said trying to cut the tension by slapping her forehead. You call it the creeper like in Minecraft. Gwen grew excited. She nodded. I hate those guys, Lydia said, letting a sneer lift her lip. They sneak up on you and they blow everything to pieces. Me too, both the one in the game and the one up here. Gwen tapped the side of her head. Lydia nodded. Well, I've been feeling like I have a creeper of my own all day, Gwen but not so much now. I'm starting to feel like myself again. A loud rumbling sounded. 
Lydia and Seth stood and looked around, trying to find the source, but nothing seemed apparent. There, Gwen said, pointing at a ventilation shaft. That's where it's coming from. Seth climbed up on the desk and looked in the vent. Well, there's your answer, he announced. This place has an independent ventilation system. It's probably been running since we turned on the generator. So if there's something in the air outside, we're not breathing it in here. The pollen count is insane out there. We noticed that too. Seth clambered back down. He put a hand on Gwen's shoulder. You hear that, sweetheart? Everything's going to be all right. The creeper hasn't really been acting up. It's just something in the air. But the air in here is clean, so we should be all right. The girl shook her head. No, Dad. The creeper is getting stronger. He's getting louder and louder in my head. Before, he was always a little whisper when he was there, and sometimes he was gone. But right now, it's like he's shouting nonstop. Seth shook his head. No, Gwen, I'm telling you, that's not happening. The gas, the effect, whatever it is, it's not in here. That's all outside. We're safe. Lydia reached out and put a hand on Seth's shoulder. She knew she was the interloper here, but she also knew she had to say something. Seth? He looked at her, the anguish in his eyes plain. This may sound stupid, but haven't you ever watched a monster movie before? What does that have to do with anything? Every time there's a monster in a movie, there's a psychic or a woman or a child who believes in it first. And everyone calls her crazy. It's almost always a her, until the monster turns out to be real. And devours everybody, Seth said. So maybe he had seen a movie or two in his time. Seth reached down and took his daughter's folded hands in his own, forming a ball. I'm sorry, Gwen. I know I promised to always listen to you, and I'm just telling you how to feel instead. What's going on? Gwen looked like she was ready to cry, but no tears fell. The creeper is getting really strong, Dad. I don't know if I can hold him back much longer. What's that smell? Chris muttered, covering his mouth with his baseball cap. Fred sniffed the air. A sickly sweet smell, like honey poured over raw chicken and left in the sun, was impossible to deny anymore. He racked his brain but didn't recognize it. It was probably some local flora. Yeah, it is sort of rank, Tony agreed, lighting up a cigar to keep away the stench. What do you figure it is, Fred? Fred glanced around. He didn't spot any flowers or animal spore. The closest thing was a bud on a nearby black oak. He poked it with the hatchet he had confiscated from Kendall. The blossom exploded and Fred grimaced. Inside was a festering mess of black goo. Bugs or some kind of arboreal disease must have gotten to it. It's these trees, he said. The pollen. Are they supposed to smell like that? Chris asked, voice muffled slightly by his hat. Tony blew a puff of smoke very nearly into Fred's face, making him cough. He could have throttled the man. He wanted to slap the stupid trucker cap off Chris's mouth and tell him to speak properly, damn it. Instead, he dug down deep. No, I don't think so, 
They're rotten or something. They continued on in silence for a few minutes, the only noise the burgeoning cicada population. Fred didn't even realize he was straining to see until Chris pulled out his phone and turned on the flashlight. Dusk had crept up on them, and they had nothing to show for it. He sighed loudly. Maybe we should head back, Tony said. Yeah, maybe this was a bad move, Fred. Maybe we should have just stayed at camp and waited for Seth and the others to return. Fred ground his teeth. He was getting sick and goddamn tired of everyone gainsaying him. Was he the scoutmaster or wasn't he? Maybe they're back already, Tony added. Shut up, Tony, he snapped. We're staying out until I say we're done. Chris and Tony exchanged a knowing look. They were plotting against him. He could feel it. There's no more light, Fred, Tony said. This plan is totally nuts. Nuts? You think I'm nuts? No, Tony said, holding up his hands and shaking his head slightly. I'm just saying this is not the greatest idea. If we get lost too, then we're worse off than we were before. Yeah, you're right. It's nuts. I'm out of my fucking mind. Here, I'll show you. Fred slapped his left hand on the trunk of a tree and brought the hatchet down, severing his pinky and ring finger. Tony and Chris nearly jumped out of their skins. How's that for nuts, Tony? How about this? Like a sickle harvesting wheat, the hatchet arced through the air. The blade bifurcated Tony's head lengthwise. Two perfect halves of a cigar toppled to the ground, followed by the top of Tony's head. Fred held the axe, dripping with warm gore, aloft in the orange glow of dusk. Was that too nuts for you, Tony? He turned on Chris, whose eyes were wide like a Hummel figurine's. Suddenly, Fred's red-hot anger faltered. Jesus Christ, Fred, Chris whispered. Fred lowered the hatchet and stared at it, realizing what he had done. He glanced down at his hand, the two stumps of his finger still spurting gouts of blood like many old faithfuls. He felt no pain, no fear, no shock, no revulsion, nothing. Not even when he had been on a morphine drip and oxycotton after his shoulder surgery had he felt this utterly divorced from his own body. Not to mention his mind. To kill Tony like that? What the hell was wrong with him? He wasn't like this. He'd once cried after hitting a deer. I... I... Chris started to back away from him. Fred took a deep breath of that rotten oak air and suddenly seethed again. He advanced on Chris. You heard what he said to me. It was a little uncool, Fred, but it wasn't chop off your buddy's head uncool. Chris slipped his hand into his pocket and fingered something. A can of mace, perhaps, or a mini taser, as though he were expecting an attack. An attack? From him, Fred wouldn't hurt a fly tail feather. Who the fuck did he think he was dealing with? What's in your pocket, Chris? Just my phone and my keys, Fred. Chris made his name sound like the foulest curse in the English language. Fred's eyes narrowed. I asked what you've got in your pocket, Chris. And 
and I just fucking told you. Fred took a deep breath. A deep, sickly, sweet, lavender sort of breath. Trying to collect his nerves. He was tired of always being the bigger man. The peacemaker. He lunged at Chris. Hatchet held high. Chris's fist slammed into his gut, and he thought he'd been shot. The hatchet clattered to the ground, tinkling against the rocks. Fred dropped to one knee. Chris loomed over him, his fist not yet removed from Fred's gut. The man had a lunatic look in his eyes. How do you like that, motherfucker? Chris twisted his fist clockwise, and a thousand tiny stinging barbs sliced through Fred. His whole shirt and crotch were stained with blood. Chris finally pulled his fist out, his knuckles caked with ichor. He fluttered his fingers in Fred's direction, and each knuckle was a key. One long with a plastic fob, probably to a car, another a house key, a third smaller maybe to his mailbox or a locker. What'd I tell you, Fred? Nothing but my keys and my phone. But then it doesn't take much to kick the shit out of you, does it? Clutching his shredded belly with his left hand, Fred lunged forward, catching Chris's face with his right. He tore a gash down Chris's forehead with his fingernails, and then dug in when he felt the softer flesh of the man's left eye. Shrieking, Chris fell backward, his arms flailing and his keys disappearing into the underbrush. Fred was on top of him in an instant. From this vantage point, he could deliver blow after blow to Chris's face, and the other man couldn't block him, couldn't fight back. Fred cackled with unbridled glee as Chris's nose first snapped, then shattered, then wedged shard by cartilaginous shard into his brain, until the other man was struggling to breathe and finally stopped. A pool of blood had accumulated on Chris's chest. It was Fred's. His vision was getting spotty. Slowly humming a country song he had penned for his first girlfriend, and surprised that it was coming back to him, he lurched off the other man's prostrate form and slowly lowered himself to a sitting position. This is called shock, boys, he muttered, suddenly wondering where he was and if the scouts were paying attention. It happens after major blood loss or sometimes just a bad surprise. Hence the term shock. The important thing when you're in shock is to never, ever... He passed out, his head smashing against a rock. Briefly, the agony of a shattered skull stunned him into pained wakefulness. But then he was out again, this time permanently. The air crackled, almost electric, dense, with a billowing harvest of tiny pollen capsules. Even the moon seemed speckled with black flakes, like too much pepper in a bowl of curdling chowder. In the distance, a demented coyote howled to its mate, its voice sounding rabid and more like a hyena's than its own. The curtain of night descended upon this stage of Silverwood, darkness finally encompassing all. Bogan limped toward the warehouse, clutching his thigh. Closer now, he could see that the sign actually read Lab 04. 
Who the hell put a laboratory in the middle of the woods? And what could they possibly be testing? But who cared? Right now, all he wanted was a place to hide. His eye was half-swollen shut, his leg on fire. And God, his shoulder was spurting a geyser of blood. He reached around and clapped at it. The pocket knife was inserted in a weird spot in his back, the sort of place that was tough to reach with a bar of soap in the shower. He wrapped his fingers around the handle and yanked, but it didn't come loose. The lab was ringed by a chain-link fence with a toupee of concertina wire. There was no climbing over that. Not that he was in any position to climb. Shit, he muttered. Making his way to the fence's gate, he glanced over his shoulder. The boys were close and bloodthirsty, and Petey had already cut him deeply. He'd grown up learning that sharks and lions went wild when blood was in the air, but he'd never expected to see the same behavior from a gang of ten-year-olds. If the gate was locked, he was fucked. Wiping the sweat from his brow, he heaved a sigh of relief when he saw that someone had taken a pair of wire cutters to the gate. A length of chain lay on the ground, the slice through padlock still looped through it. With speed that surprised even himself, Hogan grabbed the chain as he passed through the gate. He wrapped it around the two steel poles that held up the door and began the fence. With the padlock ruined, he'd have to hold the chain by hand to keep it from unraveling. It was too thick to knot in any effective manner. He grasped the two loose ends of the chain with one hand, twisted, and sighed in relief. Not a minute too soon, because the boys were upon him. Petey shook the gate, and for a moment Hogan worried it would come loose, but it held. The other three slammed into the fence. Let us in, Grandpa, Petey whispered in a low growl. Yeah, I don't think so. You've been outflanked, boys. Outflanked and outwitted. Hissing and snapping his teeth like a wild dog, Steve threw himself at the fence. I'm gonna get you, old man. I'm gonna get you back for everything you've ever done to me. Hogan turned and spat in the kid's face. Steve stopped, wiped the loogie away, and then promptly smashed his forehead into the metal pole. Hogan laughed. I know you had a thick skull, fatty, but... Steve interrupted him by knocking his head against the pole again. You're not gonna knock it down like that, you know, no matter how hard your head is. He did it again and again. Petey and the others shook the fence, screaming at the sky like crazed monkeys. The smile melted from Hogan's face as he saw that blow after self-inflicted blow. Steve showed no reaction whatsoever. Not pain, not confusion, not so much as a wince. A trickle of blood trailed from his brow line to his cheek. Steve pressed his face into the chain link. I don't care what happens to me. Just think of what I'm going to do to you, old man. Hogan took a step back, and the chain almost slipped from his grip. Steve jumped and shook the fence right where it met the gate. But Hogan managed to regain his hold on the chain in the nick of time. He paused, feeling lightheaded. The strain of his wounds, blood loss, and just general stress of the situation were getting to him but at least the other three little animals had stopped shaking the fence. Hey, he barked. What are you little shits planning? Petey, Lamar, and Kendall had gathered together in a huddle, just out of his earshot, and were whispering. At Hogan's outburst, Petey looked up, his eyes glinting. Go, he said. Steve, you go with Kendall. 
He'll fill you in. Reluctantly, Steve peeled away from his position and joined his friend as he ran off into the night. Lamar disappeared in the opposite direction. Alone now, Petey walked up to the gate. Oh, I get it, Hogan said. You're trying to divide my attention, keep me distracted, pull some psyops. Except you're an amateur at this, kid. I'm a master. Petey put his hands through the fence. What's the matter, Grandpa? Scared? Scared? My generation didn't get to be scared. The Ruskies had the bomb, and our space shuttles were blowing up in the goddamn sky. And we just had to buck up and march into the Middle East smiling. It's you little shits with your participation trophies and your safe spaces who are too scared to put your feet out the door. Hogan quivered from blood loss and dropped to his knee so he wouldn't fall over. Petey remained unintimidated. Oh, the war, the war, the war. You goddamn blowhard. You think I'm too young or stupid to pay attention, but I do. I listen to every crummy lie that comes out of your mouth. You flew helicopters one minute, the next you were a drill instructor. You can't talk about your missions when it suits you. And when it suits you otherwise, you killed 50 men. How about now? Finally, at the end, you level with me, old man. What'd you actually do during the Gulf War? Something warm, salty, and wet rolled down Hogan's cheeks. But he knew it wasn't tears. He wasn't some fucking pussy. He was just old and tired and hurt and... No, not old. Not old at all. He still had 30 good years left. Oh, I killed men, boy. I killed women and children, too. I killed so many ragheads they would have carpeted Saddam's place with their hides. I'm a killer, all right, Petey. And I'm gonna kill you. And if you think I won't because you're a kid or my blood, you're about to get that notion completely unfucked from your mind. A hand came down on Hogan's left shoulder, the side that had been pierced by the can opener. He cried out in pain and nearly fell over, the chain slipping from his hand like a greased marble. Kendall leered down at him. The boy's face and hands were covered with deep gashes, and a ragged, triangular chunk of his right cheek had been pulled back like the dog-eared page of a novel. As Kendall grinned, his upper lip, split by the razor wire, pulled in two different directions. You... you just crawled through it? What the fuck is wrong with you, you fucking lunatic? Hogan shrieked as he felt the pressure tugging on his back. He glanced over his shoulder and saw Petey pulling at the knife. Hogan's arms scrabbled at the air, but Lamar, missing an eye among other injuries, grabbed his left hand. Steve, fat little butterball Steve, whole patches of his scalp missing and bleeding where his hair had caught in the wire and been ripped away in ragged chunks, wrapped his arm around Hogan's neck. God damn, that's in there good, Petey said. Petey, my boy, my grandson. He heard the pathetic fear in his own voice. Petey planted his foot into Hogan's back and yanked, finally ripping the two curved blades of the can opener out. Petey walked around the Hogan's front and crouched down, holding up the can opener, a chunk of Hogan's flesh about the size of a golf ball still clinging to it. Petey twirled the gruesome meatball in front of his grandfather's face. Look at that, Grandpa. 
I got you good. This is a pretty neat old knife you gave me. Hogan turned from face to face, animal terror the only thing animating him at this point. You see what he's doing, don't you? He sent you three to get fucked up climbing the fence. You get hurt doing the dirty work while he sits back here smoking and joking. What kind of leader does that? Pain's just weakness leaving the body, remember, Mr. Carter? Stephen toned, an acidic bite to his voice. Yeah, Grandpa. Besides, you got me all wrong. I'm not scared of a little cut. Petey stuck the chunk of flesh pitted on the pocket knife into his mouth and bit down so hard there was a crunch. He chewed once, twice, three times before opening his mouth and showing off the cracked teeth and deep gashes in his tongue from biting into the can opener blade. Carefully, Petey folded it closed and opened the knife blade. He held it up to the night sky and examined it. You should be happy, Mr. Carter, Kendall said, clapping him on his destroyed shoulder and making him wince. You fought well, right up until the end. Yeah, Mr. Carter, Lamar agreed letting the name slither out of his mouth like he was a snake. Don't you always say the greatest thing a man can do is die in battle? Wait. Hogan turned to Petey, looking for the face that had once belonged to his grandson beneath the deranged monsters. He hoped, or perhaps imagined, there was a glimmer of it. You asked what I really did in the Persian Gulf. Well, I wasn't a D.I., and I didn't fly a helicopter, and I wasn't a sniper. No shit, Steve said. Ignoring the other boys, Hogan focused all his attention on Petey. He was the leader, and the one Hogan was most likely to get through to. I was a Marine. That part's true. But I didn't score very well on my ASVAB, and the only job I could do was laundering clothes or cooking. So that's what I did during Desert Storm. I cooked. It wasn't very glamorous, but that was my contribution. Petey stared into Hogan's eyes and then cocked his head like he had seen something there. You're still lying. How can you even walk around with all the lies weighing you down, Grandpa? Petey waved the pocket knife through the air in figure eights to punctuate his words. Hogan held up his hands in surrender as best he could with how the other boys were restraining him. All right. It wasn't a lie. It just wasn't the whole truth. I was a cook. But when our ship arrived in the Gulf, I was so scared. I think I've always been scared of getting old, of dying. Back then, I was just a kid. I didn't want to go. That was all I knew. I just knew I didn't want to go. So I drank a bottle of Ipecac and took a bunch of laxatives. Steve chuckled like a fiend. What's Ipecax and Laxawax? Kendall asked. It's old-timey shit to make you puke and shit your pants, Steve answered in between giggles. He made himself sick. He faked it. All this bullshit, Lamar said. And you've never even been in combat? I was in a war zone. I mean, I never left the ship, but that whole area was still enough. Petey said, holding up his knife hand as though it were the scales of justice. Sounds like we're doing you a favor, Grandpa. 
We're granting you the warrior's death you don't deserve. But first, let me get my war face on. Petey tugged on his own right ear with one hand and lopped it off with the other, cutting through cartilage and bone with one swift motion. Then he dragged the blade under his eyes, leaving two deep gashes around the spot where ballplayers applied their eye black. He cut and cut, leaving welts and wounds all over his body until he resembled his friends who had crawled through the razor wire. When he was finished, he roared, Ah, that's a war face. What he did to Hogan next was far, far worse. You're listening to Silverwood by Stephen Kozanewski, starring Neil Helligers and Sarah Malo Christensen. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Realm, listen away. In a world saturated with glossy facades comes a podcast that's breaking barriers. This is Reppin. It's where we do a deep dive into subjects like belonging, to mental health, to courage, and more. On Reppin, you'll meet the faces you think you know and discover their untold stories. It's real, it's intimate, and it gives you insight into the real person behind the images. In a world of pretense, Reppin strips it all down. No filters, no facades. Learn and be empowered and find inspiration through thought-provoking stories that resonate with your journey. Every episode is an exploration into the truths and values that make us who we are. Representation, it's not just about race or gender. It's about you. Reppin ensures that every voice is heard. Every story is valued. So be seen, be heard, and be represented. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts. Silverwood is written by Brian Keane, Richard Chismar, Stephen Kozanewski, Michelle Garza, and Melissa Laysan. Based on Silverwood by Tony E. Valenzuela. It is produced by Lydia Shama and executive produced by Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, and editing by Amanda Rose Smith. Theme music by Brandon Roberts. <laughs>